Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. I hope you realize the significance of what is uh, getting ready to happen. Um, God declares to us from His Word that, that we're called together as believers... We're to assemble together, and as we assemble together, we, we provoke one another to love and good works. We, we, um, we hear the Word, we sing, we praise the Lord together. But the centerpiece of, of, of the service, the centerpiece of, of what's, what's going to happen, regardless of whether I'm standing here or, or whoever is standing here, God's going to speak to His people, and He's going to speak through, through His Word. I mean, you think about this. This is this is the Creator that said, "Let there be light," and there's there's light. Everybody's buzzing about the eclipse that's going to take place tomorrow. You're going to hear the words of the one that set the sun, the moon, and the stars in place in just about five seconds. He's going to speak, and 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 his words has the ability to create. It doesn't just tweak things. God has the ability to create something out of nothing. He creates spiritual life out of nothing. There's nothing good in you. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ. You're dead in your sin. And through the word of the living God, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Spiritual life can come into your life this morning. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. <laughs> can happen. His, his word has the ability to break the hardest heart. It has the ability to plow fallowed ground. It has the ability to, to not just knock the calluses off, but, but, but make a heart so tender that it would, that it would go from, from a back totally bowed up in rebellion against the Lord to the bowed knee and the tear in the eye. His Word has that power. And that's getting ready to take place. And you're sitting here getting ready to hear the Word of the Lord. So whatever distractions are, there are around you, listen to the Word of of God. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is, is some very essential instructions about ministry. It's about, it's about a how-to. If you go out and search how-to on, online, you would, you would get more books than, than you would know what to do. How to do ministry. You'd get more books than, 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 than you would know what to do with. And, and yet, this passage, the Lord provides a definitive model on, on ministry. You might think of it, as we said, like the original blueprint, and then you see God putting the, uh, the blueprint in, in practice, building what He puts in the blueprint in the book of Acts. It's complete with instructions. It's complete with an example. The disciples are sent out, and now this morning we're going to see it's, it's complete with a return report. Those disciples come back and they report to, to, to Jesus about all that they had done and all that they had, that they had taught. And up to this point in the book of Mark, Jesus has been the only preacher. But in Mark chapter 6, he, he multiplies his message by sending out the, the twelve in, in two by two. And this is their first official preaching trip. They go from learners to, to, to doers. It's a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. We're, we're about a year and a half in. We're, we're a little beyond halfway. An opposition's been building, and it, it passes this, uh, uh, this point of rejection and then... Uh, Jesus uh, begins to multiply his message throughout Galilee, and then he's going to set his face toward Jerusalem, and he's, he's going to head in, in that direction. It's also a pivotal moment because 
because we saw last week the death of John the Baptist. I mean, what awaits Jesus is seen and imaged in this passage about John. And for a year and a half, the disciples have been with Jesus, and they're going to be sent out for the first time. They've been listening to what he said. They've been listening to his sermons, and now they're going to go repeat those sermons. They've been watching what he does, and he gives them authority to do the same things. And now they're going to put it into, into practice. As I said, this is a story within a story. So you see the disciples sent out, and they go, and they're just how they go. And then there's this, this like middle of the sandwich, which is about John the Baptist, his, his arrest and, and, and his death. And now we're going to come back to the disciples returning right before the, the miracle of the, of the loaves and the fishes, as it's called, the, where Jesus feeds the the 5,000 men, and, and we'll, we'll see that whenever we, we get there. And, and John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, and he's, he's preparing the way for the Messiah. He does that even in, even, even in his death. And as I said, that foreshadows what, what can happen to the disciples. Why is that inserted between the disciples going out and the disciples coming back? Because the, John the Baptist, it's a picture of what can happen to the disciples and what will happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not there, Mark 6, and we're going to see this, this return. Mark 6, and we're going to begin reading in, or begin looking in verse 30, but I'll draw your attention back to, to, verse, to verse 7, because this is the purpose of the mission trip. The passage has massive importance to us today, because it gives a formula for ministry. I would say this. When the, when the 12 are sent, is a lot like the parable of the soils for evangelism. parable of the soils for evangelism gives this, 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 this clear teaching on, on what happens in evangelism, how evangelism is supposed to be done for the disciples who are scratching their heads trying to figure out why is not all of Israel flocking to, to the Lord. And, and Jesus gives the, the parable of the, of the soils. The problem is not the seed, it's not the gospel, it's not the sower, it's not the person who shares the gospel. You don't need to modify the message or jazz up the, the, uh, the, the sower. The issue is the soil. It's the heart. And so preach the message unchanged, unaltered, and trust God. Now Jesus gives us this method of ministry. And, and so it's, this is significant. It, it casts the die for all the ministry that's going to be, going to be done going forward. And it's, as you're going to see, as you've already seen, it's not a go-it-alone, pragmatic, culturally relevant kind of thing. It's following the the Lord's model that he gives to, to build his, his church. And Jesus gives a method for sending, a model for going, and a ministry to, to accomplish. In verse 7, he sent them to preach his word and to do his works. He sends them out with his message, with power over unclean spirits. In verse 8, he charges them to take nothing, depend upon God, and do deepen their, deepen their faith. They're not to take provision. In verse 10, he, he says to them to commune with believers and give a testimony of, uh, to unbelievers of their rejection of the, of the gospel. Stay with those, enter the house, whoever receives the message. And um, for those who don't receive it in verse 11, shake the dust off your feet. And then in verse 12, they went out and they preached. They go in obedience and, and there's God's results. Many demons and... Uh, were, were cast out, and many were anointed with oil, and many who were sick were, were, were healed. Now, we covered John. Now, turn over to verse 30, because this is where the story picks back up. 
Look at verse 30. Then the disciples gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had, had taught. Here the group returns, and they give this report to, to Jesus. So verses 7 through 12, they go out under authority. They go under authority, and now they return in accountability. In verses 30 through 34. And that all sets up this scene where the, where the 5,000 men are, are fed. So let me give you the, the outline here. I can't see it on the back wall there. There's the mission report. And it's the, it gives us a, a lesson in accountability. Now, we were joking on Wednesday night. We were talking about, um, about justice. Um, everybody wants justice, they just don't want it for themselves, right? Everybody wants justice. I give them justice. And then when it comes to us, we say, mercy, mercy, and we need that. And everybody wants everyone else to be held accountable. They just don't want to be held accountable themselves. Well, well, this is a passage about accountability. And you're going to see it doesn't just apply to the disciples or the apostles. It also applies to, 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 to you. It's the Lord's lesson in accountability. There's the messenger's report. They return and report in verse 30. Then there's the minister's rest. In verse 31 through 32, Jesus sends the disciples, the apostles, out to rest after they return. And then there's the multitude's desperation in verse 33. And then there is the master's compassion in verse 34. And that's going to set up this, this story about the loaves and the... And, and the the fishes. We, we're accountable to the master. That's in the messenger's report. We're, we're accountable to our limitations. That's the minister's rest. We're accountable to others' need. That's the multitude's desperation. And we're accountable to the master's mission. And that's seen in the master's compassion. Let's, let's walk through these one by one. There's the, the messenger's Report. We're accountable to the master. Verse 30 is all about accountability, and it's about accountability to the, to the master. Verse 30 says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. They were sent with authority. They returned in, a, in accountability. And you can see this, this, this idea in both their name and the fact that they come back and report to, uh, to Jesus. Notice what they're called in verse 30. I pointed this out to you when we were, we were walking through the first half of this. Then the apostles gathered to, to, to Jesus. This is the only time in the book of Mark they're called apostles. This is the first time that they're called apostles in, in the gospel. Up to this point, they were the disciples, they were the twelve. And now Mark specifically says the apostles gathered. And the reason he does that is because the term means sent ones. They were sent out. And the sent ones return. The sent ones gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they, they had taught. And their new title and the return report both emphasize the nature of their, of their role. The disciples had been commissioned by Jesus as delegates, as emissaries. It wasn't their authority. It wasn't their message. It wasn't even their ministry. They were stewards, and they had been sent out on a mission, and now they come back and they give a report to the, 
to their authority concerning what 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 they had what they had done and and this should be nothing odd to us missionaries come back and 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 report to us the authority today is the is the church that's how Christ mediates his his authority the church sins and those who are sent return and they report to to that authority you can see that in the book of acts when the apostle paul went out they come back and they 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 report and yet it's exactly the same for us even if you're not a missionary we've been sent out and we've been sent out under delegated authority we're witnesses and one day we are going to return for a report and that's at the the bema seat we go out under authority do you remember how the great commission begins it actually begins before the the go therefore you remember how jesus starts the whole great commission all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth therefore go jesus begins with the authority it's not it's not my authority it's not your authority it's christ's authority all authority has been given to him and therefore based on that authority we're sent under that that authority we have no authority in ourselves but christ by his authority sends us but then at the end of our lives we're going to come back and give a report with the, the disciples apostles here went out on a short-term mission trip we, we got on a lifelong mission trip and at the end of our lives we we're, we go under his authority with his commission to be his witnesses and we come back and we give a report second corinthians five ten. for we must all it doesn't say for the missionaries must appear before the judgment seat of christ or the pastors must appear before the judgment seat of christ all must appear for the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether, whether good or bad. Now, that's not, a, that's not a judgment of sin, but an evaluation of how well you carried out the mission, how well you carried out the Master's command under his authority. He doesn't take us out of the world. He leaves us in the world, and we are to be his, his witnesses. And I might add that the world can tell that we're his witnesses by the way we love one another. And that's not a judgment of sin. This is how well we carried out our mission. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that very clearly. We are God's fellow workers. Now, Paul's talking to about church planting and otherwise, but, but it applies to how we operate in the church. For we are God's field, you are God's building. That's the church. Paul says, uh, Corinthians, we're uh, the one who planted and the one who waters. The, the evangelist that goes out, the missionary that goes out and, and proclaims the gospel. God saves people and assemblies gathered together. And then that's handed off to elders, pastor teachers, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Whether you're the missionary evangelist that goes or the pastor teacher that comes in and builds on that gospel foundation, we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, Paul says, as a wise master builder I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one, watch this, take heed how he builds on it. Why? Why why does it matter whether you follow Christ's mission? Why does it matter whether you go under his authority? Why does it matter whether you use his methods? Why does it matter that, that... that, that this story in the, book of, uh, in, in the book of Mark gives us a pattern for ministry. Why, why can't you just talk about accountability, Pastor, because of this passage right here? 
because, in verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what quality it is, what sort it is. And if, if anyone's work, which he built, the work that you do in the gospel in the kingdom, with the gospel in the kingdom, if it endures, you'll receive a, a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, and, and he, himself, he himself will be saved. Yet also through a trying time. No... That's why you lay no other foundation than Christ. That's why when you build, you, you build with good materials, gold, silver, and precious stones. And you don't build with worldly materials, wood, hay, and, and straw. And the test on that day, the test on the day that you and I come back and give a report to Christ, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a Sunday school teacher or whether you're just a, a, a witness, the test on that day will be, did we follow the plan? Did we use the right building materials? That's proven by whether the work remains. Notice that. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he builds on it endures or remains. That's all that's going to remain, folks. What's built on the gospel, what's done Christ's way. All of the, all of the, the ballooning up and, and all of the great crowds and all of the swooning and all of that is going to pass away. And how faithful you were to his plan, his gospel, his methods. And if you're a wise master builder, Paul says, then you will be rewarded on that day when you come back and you give an account. And that's the accountability. The accountability right now is you've been sent under his authority and you're accountable to the word, you're accountable to the church, you're accountable to your elders, you're accountable to all those things. And the ultimate accountability will come when you come back on that day and you stand before the Lord. And sadly, some will stand before the Lord and all that they've done will be will be tried by the piercing eye of the Lord to test the motives and the quality of the work, and it will, it will go poof, it will go up. We're not individuals or islands in ministry. We're members of a body and accountable. Let's look at the second one. Here's some more accountability. The ministers rest. We're accountable to our limitations. We're accountable to our limitations. Look, if you would, at verse 31. They come back and they give an account for what they've done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to, to eat. Come away by yourselves. Then they went away by themselves in verse, verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. Come away by yourselves. They went away by themselves. And the disciples returned, and they had done exactly what the Lord commanded. Notice there's no rebuke. And you can also see the mission was successful because the crowd was there following them. The same crowd that was clamoring for the work of Christ is now clamoring for the disciples. The idea here is, is people are coming and going constantly. The work is constantly going on, and there's, they don't even have time to eat. They don't even have time to think about eating, much less resting. And they're worn out. Ministry is exhausting. Talking to Rick Holland, a friend of mine out in, in Kansas City, just uh, about two weeks ago, and he was out of town on Sunday morning, 
and they had just changed their service times. They went from two services to one service because they had expanded the, expanded the sanctuary. And this was the first time that the associate pastor, the youth pastor, was going to be preaching. And so he got up and he began to preach. And the new time that they get out was 11.30. And at 12.01, he stopped preaching. So for an hour and 20 minutes... He was, he was preaching, and he was calling to confess to his pastor that, that he had done that. And, and Rick said to him, don't, don't worry, the people that are sitting on the pews will forgive you. The ones that you need to, to, you need to ask forgiveness for, buy some Chick-fil-A gift cards, are the people that are in the nursery and the children's ministry. Those are the ones that you need to be asking for forgiveness. Ministry is exhausting, whether that is laboring in the Word to bring the Word or whether that's in the nursery. And the disciples come back here, and they're, they're worn, worn out. They proclaim the words of Christ, and that was confirmed by the works of Christ. And many people were coming and going to the point that they had no time to even, to even eat. I mean, I understand this very, very well. And so do you as a faithful servant of, uh, of Jesus, or you should. I mean, there are many times of the day, I'm not exaggerating, there are many times, usually on a weekly basis, where I look at the clock and it's dinner time and I haven't eaten all day. And I don't even think about eating because you're just so consumed with, with what is necessary. And if you do think about eating, there's something else that comes in that's more important than, than, than food. And, and, and as someone who loves Christ and, and, and loves people, that's not a burden. And the disciples aren't coming back, uh, you know, woe is me, I can't believe that you sent me out on such a hard task here. I didn't even have time to eat. And Jesus is like, all right, all right, go ahead and, and get you something to eat. It's, they're, they're coming back and giving a report. And to serve the one who saved you is a, is a blessing. I mean, what else do you want to do with your life? What else would you want to do with, with your life? Amass stuff that's going to perish one day? I mean, really, what else do you want to do with your life other than serve the Master? Now, that doesn't mean that you do what I'm doing, every one of you. That means that, that you go be doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, whatever it might be. But you do that under the glory of God. And if you're in ministry, you're preparing for ministry, and people are having to prod you to serve, or you're, you're turning down ministry opportunities all the time, you need to do some evaluation. People ought to be saying to you, whoa, slow down, go take a rest, not, not giddy up. <laughs> Even as we serve, we're accountable. And we're accountable not only to the Lord, but to our own frailties. I want you to notice in verse 31, He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and take a rest. It was Jesus who was the one commanding them to take a rest. It was Jesus who commanded them to go out, and it's Jesus who commands them to take a rest. Oh, my Savior is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not one that's going to put burdens and yokes upon you with the do's and the don'ts of the law that you could never you could never obtain, you could never complete. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And for those of you who know Jesus and know Christ, even the things that you're commanded to do and, and you're commanded not to do, it, it, He gives you a new heart. He even gives you the desires to want to do those things. They're not a burden. 
And there's normal rest that God has built into your day and into your week, and you shouldn't violate that, because if you do, you're going to break. But, but He's built seasons of rest to remind us that we're not Him. I mean, the disciples were wanting to work. They were continuing to work. And Jesus says it's time to take a rest, and He has to tell them to do that to remind them of their own limitations. We're accountable to our limitations. We must sleep. He never slumbers. We must rest. He is our rest. After times of intense ministry, the Master commands a rest. Missionaries get furloughs. We give leaders, deacons, others to rotate off and back on. I want you to notice where he tells them to withdraw. Verse 31 and 32 uses the same word. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Look at verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place. Now I want you to notice that what's, what's most important to Mark is not the location. Mark doesn't say, and you go to Gadara or you go to Capernaum. He repeats this, this desert place, this wilderness place twice. The character of the place that they're told to withdraw to is more important than the actual location. Mark has given plenty of locations before. Mark obviously knows where they went. Jesus directs the disciples to withdraw to a, a wilderness place to rest, to remind them that they're accountable. We're accountable to our own limitations. And yet this wilderness place is is more than, than, than just a, a location. Can you think of another time when God called His people out of labor into a wilderness, into a desert? Can you remember what God did for those people when He called them out of labor into that desert? His presence was with them. He provided for them. And in that time, He prepared them for a land that was to come, didn't He? I want you to notice who is with them in verse 34, look at verse 34. At verse 33, the multitude saw and uh, them departing. They ran ahead. They arrived before them, so the disciples. Jesus says, you're accountable to your limitations. Take a rest. And you want to take a rest in this wilderness place, and he's setting something up here. And then Mark says, the multitude saw and departed, and they ran from all of the cities, and they arrived before to this to this wilderness place, and they came and came together to him in verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, came out of the boat, saw the multitude. Jesus is with them in this desert place. It's, when you're accountable to your limitations, if you're a Christian, it's not just about uh, you deserve a break today. It's not just about getting somewhere alone. It's about getting somewhere alone with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you recharge your batteries. And Jesus is setting something up. The disciples are called away. This is an echo of the Exodus. The disciples are called away from their labor to a desert place, and He's with them and will lead them. His very presence is there, and He's going to use this time to prepare them. And there's a bunch of other people that are going to join them in just a moment. They run ahead, and they're there, and prepare them for the kingdom. That's That's coming. He's teaching them He's the true rest for their souls and He's the one that will provide. And He'll show that explicitly in just a moment with loaves and, and fishes.
Let's look at this third accountability. There's the multitude's desperation. We're accountable to others' need. In verse 33, we're accountable to the master. It's his ministry. We're going to give a report to him one day. We're accountable to our own limitations. That keeps us accountable. But we're also accountable to the need of men and women around us who are perishing. It's ultimately about people. It's about the Lord, but the Lord's about people. And verse 33, but the multitude. So they departed to a desert place in the boat, the boat. Not just a boat, the boat. There's a definite article there. This is Peter's boat. This is the boat that they were in whenever Jesus calmed the sea. This is the boat that they went in with to Gadara. The boat by themselves. I want to tell you, some people say, uh, you know, I don't know how Woody uh, um, goes to China. And I don't know how Woody goes to China as much as he does either. Or I don't know how you take all these airplane rides. I want to tell you, when I'm on an airplane, it's like, you know, I can't get email. Nobody can get me email. After I evaluate whether the person next to me is, is, needs a witness to or not, I put in my, my little headphones and I drown the world out and I spend time alone with the Lord. I mean, it is, the disciples get in the boat and they're alone. And they get to the desert place and the horde is there ahead of them. Can you imagine? Oh, we're going to a desert place. The Lord has given us this respite and they're riding across with Jesus. Just Jesus and us, we're going to be able to spend some time together alone and they get closer to the bank and closer to the bank and there's this, 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 this thousands of people there. I wonder what was going on in their hearts. You think they're thinking, man, I was really looking forward to that rest. What's Jesus teaching me? We're accountable to our limitations and there's times of rest, but we're also accountable to others' need. It's not just about us. It's not just about our rest. And there are times when you're worn, frazzled to the bone, and there will be somebody who will come with a need. And that need is, 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 may not be important to you, but it is very important to them. And I want to tell you, whenever you meet that need, Jesus Christ will infuse you with the strength that you need in order to meet that need. Have you ever been there? And you'll be fuller after that than you were before. The disciples in Jesus sail in the boat and the crowds make them out in the water and they run along the roads and they discern where they're going and they beat them there. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a approximately 680 feet below sea level. So it's like looking down in a bowl, shape of a harp. But you can see it. And when you launch out from one side, you, I mean, you can see where the, boat's, where the boat's headed. And there's somewhere around 200 to 250 little fishing villages all around the Sea of Galilee. And there's a road system that connects them. The Romans used that to move their troops, and the people used that to do, to do ministry, agriculture, I mean, to do... Uh, to do business and do agriculture and Jesus and the disciples use that for, for ministry. And so the people see the boat's going in that direction and I kind of know where that's going to go and so off the road I go and they, they run around and they meet them and they're there waiting on them. Now why did they do that? Why did the people do that? Because they're desperate. Now think about when this is in the time of Jesus' ministry. He's already been condemned. The religious leaders in Capernaum 
and the others have already rejected him. They've already brought the big shots up from Jerusalem saying that everything that he's done, it was by Beelzebub the devil. And there are still crowds of people gathering to hear him. They don't care what the religious leaders thought. They're desperate. They have needs. They believe Jesus and the apostles could meet those needs. The very passage Jesus gives his his assessment. We don't have to guess about whether they're desperate. Verse 34, Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They're helpless. They're wandering. They're vulnerable. That's the reality of people around us, and we're accountable to that need. And if you're not accountable to that need and you forget about that need, then you're going to start living for yourself. You will. Listen, in the world today, there are some who scoff. That's the religious leaders. There are some who reject, like the people in Nazareth. There are some who will try to kill you, like they did with John the Baptist. But there are some desperate, like these people. There are people that know their need, and they're just looking for a lifeline. Because God's already brought them to an end of themselves. And Jesus goes to them all. He goes to the scoffers, he goes to the rejectors, he goes to the ones that were trying to kill him, and he goes to the desperate people. And he sends us in the same place. You know, God is just as glorified by you giving a humble, faithful account of the gospel to someone who absolutely rejects it and says that you're an idiot You know, God is just as glorified in that as the witnessing to someone who receives the gospel. Now, the angels in heaven are going to rejoice over one and not the other, but God is just as glorified in you giving a faithful testimony and a witness of the the gospel. And this group runs ahead because they're desperate like I was. Listen, before I knew Christ, if you would have witnessed to me, I would have I would have filleted you with my tongue, sent you packing. I didn't want anything to do with Jesus as a bunch of steak knife selling idiots on TV. You know, I mean, just I can't communicate. I could not say from the pulpit to communicate the disdain I had in my heart for Christ and for for the Bible, even though I believed in God. But let me tell you, when God put me flat on my back, I didn't care whether it was Jesus. I didn't care if it was the Bible. I needed help. And Theta Lewis came to me with the gospel. And in that moment, with that gospel, God opened my heart and opened my eyes and granted me faith and repentance. And here I am. And you know God is preparing people like that? This week. One of the prayers you ought to pray when you get up every morning is, Lord, who are you working in? Because whoever that is that's going to come across my path, I want to meet them. (laughs) Show me who to minister to today. Because God is at work. You're accountable to the need, but we're also accountable to his mission. Look at verse 34. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. Why was he moved with compassion? Because of his mission. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. In verse 34, the scene shifts to Jesus from the disciples. He goes ashore. The crowds run ahead. He comes to the wilderness as well. The only rest the disciples get is the boat ride. And Jesus steps out of the boat and he engages the crowd. The disciples were 
were able to preach, and now Jesus takes back over the ministry. And he says he felt compassion on them. He tells us why, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. The compassion that he felt should be our compassion. But that compassion is connected to a mission and a method. He brings us full circle. Like sheep without a shepherd is a reference to Numbers 27, 17 and Ezekiel 34, verse 5. Jesus sees the people in light of his mission. In Numbers, Moses prays the Lord... Moses prays will, the Lord will appoint a new leader after him to take his place, lest the people be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses, the one who leads the people into the wilderness, the one who brings the, the law. Do you know, do you remember who followed Moses in answer to that prayer after Moses goes off the scene? Joshua. Do you know what Joshua's name is in the Greek Septuagint or in Greek? It's Jesus. Here's the greater Joshua seeking and saving sheep. Is she? In Ezekiel 34, 23, there is no shepherd for the sheep, but God promises the coming of a faithful shepherd as my servant David, who will establish a covenant of peace, causing the people to dwell securely in the wilderness. And here's the greater David, Jesus bringing the new covenant of peace. Do you think all this is by coincidence? Of course you don't. Think it's by coincidence there's 12 disciples and they're now the sent ones to replace the 12 tribes of Israel who failed to be the light to the Gentiles, who failed to point people to, to the Messiah, to the one who they had already rejected. Do you think it's, it's by accident they're called to this desert place after labor? Do you think it's a mistake that Jesus, his very presence, his literal presence is with them, that there's a desperate multitude that follows them into the wilderness? Is it by mistake that Jesus says God's people in the desert need a shepherd? He has compassion on them because they need a shepherd that he will provide for them. One who's greater than Moses, one who's greater than David, one who will lead them into the promised land, into the kingdom. I mean, this is gorgeous. This is the gospel right here. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that the next miracle is God providing food for these people in the middle of the desert when they didn't have any food, like manna, all pointing to the one who is the bread of life because man will not live by bread alone, but what? Every, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And look what Jesus does here. His compassion is connected to his mission They're like sheep without a shepherd, so watch what he does. So he began to teach them many things. He didn't heal them. He didn't feed them first. He began to teach them many things because that's the method. You may open doors with doing good things for people, and the Bible commands you to do good things, to good works, especially the brethren, especially the household of faith. You you should do good works. To the extent that, you, that you're able, you're to be at peace with all men and you're to do good. So that you'll have a good testimony for those who are without, those who are on the outside. But the only thing that's going to transform people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The words. And that's the method. And that's how he gathers his sheep and that's how he provides for them in the wilderness. So don't get so wrapped up in the compassion that you miss the, miss the mission. 
and you forsake the method. Mark's point is Jesus is the promised one. He's the greater Moses, the greater David. He's the one appointed by God to be the leader of the people in the new exodus. He's God's servant who provides rest. And he is the provision. As he lays down his life, opening the door to the kingdom. And that's what the disciples needed. And that's what you need. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you say, there's no way that I can scale that wall. You're absolutely right, you can't. There's no way that I can keep myself saved. You're absolutely right, you can't. There's no way that God would ever forgive me for all that I've done. You're dead wrong. He'll forgive you of whatever sins you've ever committed because He's a faithful and kind Savior. And let me tell you, if there was any other way, I've heard it said before, true. God played a cruel joke on Jesus. There's not multiple ways. If there is if there's a, any other way, then what was the purpose of the cross? Because there is no other way. On the cross, God took all of your sin and He placed it on Christ as the substitute, as the provision. And Christ bore the wrath, your wrath, the wrath, the wrath that you deserved, the wrath of God. And He lived here the perfect life And so he becomes your substitute, paying for your sin, and his perfect life becomes the substitute that you need, the substitute of righteousness that you need to get into heaven. And that is freely available to you by grace if you will come by faith and bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord and he is the one that you're trusting in. And it's right here.